good evening. Good to see each one of you here tonight. Let's all stand together, please. Turn to page 689 is where we'll begin. My Savior, first of all, page 689. We'll sing the first, the second, and the last verse together as we begin our service tonight. Lift it up together on that first verse. When my life's work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and His smile will be the first to welcome me. I shall know Him, I shall know Him, and redeemed by His side I shall stand. I shall know Him, I shall know Him, by the print of the nails in His hand. Luster of his kindly beaming eye. How my full heart will praise him for the mercy, love, and grace that prepared for me a mansion in the sky. I shall know him, I shall know him, and redeemed by his side I shall stand. I shall know him, I shall know him by the print of the nails in his hand through the gates to the city in a robe of spotless white he will lead me where no tears will ever fall in the glad song of angels i shall mingle with delight but i long to meet my savior first of all i shall know What a day it'll be when we get to heaven, amen, get to meet our Savior face to face. Well, it is good to be here in our oasis in the desert, amen, it's good to see each one of you here tonight. That's Brother Will Kennedy, would you open us in a word of prayer, please? Go ahead and be seated if you would tonight. And um, if you haven't paid any attention, there are a lot of things coming up on the calendar. And uh, so we're going to go through those just briefly tonight. And uh, I, I pray that you will pay close attention and not space out on the announcements, all right, so that we're all on the same page. But there's a lot of things coming. Uh, first of all, men, if you're going to the recharge, don't forget we're leaving this Friday at noon. So make sure that you're here uh, on time for that. And if you haven't already uh, made your payment, uh, make sure that you uh, pay for that um, before we go this Friday. Also, uh, this coming Sunday night is a teen activity. And uh, so teens, keep your, uh, yourselves aware of that. And, and good to have the teens up here tonight, by the way. And uh, for obvious reasons, we'll get into that a little more here in a few minutes. But um, it is, uh, that's going to be this Sunday night. So, so keep that in mind, uh, parents and teenagers. Uh, for that activity this Sunday night. Next Friday, if you have kids in, uh, in Faith Baptist School, uh, we've got a field trip during the day. All right, so we'll be going to Deanna Rose Farmstead. Any parents or relatives that want to go along with us, that is perfectly fine. Um, you can get with me on pricing and stuff like that of what you'll need to pay for that. But uh, we'll be going to Deanna Rose during the day. And then in the evening, beginning at 5 p.m., uh, we'll have our softball, uh, final softball and kickball games uh, next Friday as well. So that's Friday the 30th, so keep that in mind. And then the very next day, October the 1st, we'll have our outreach, all right? And it'll be the final outreach before our fall revival that will start on Sunday. So um, make sure that you're here for that, 10.30 in the morning on October the 1st, and uh, we'll head out and do a bunch of canvassing and things like that. And uh, so it be good for everybody to be here, amen? October, oh, I think we can do better than that. Come on. We need to be here for outreach, amen? Let's show up and, and be a part in that, October the 1st. 
And then, of course, fall revival does start that Sunday, the 2nd. It'll be the 2nd through the 7th. Uh, each each uh, day that week. Sunday will be normal uh, service times and things like that. Monday night uh, will begin at 7 o'clock and uh, we'll uh, have uh, a lot of the preachers here that night probably. Um, that uh, Monday night and then Tuesday morning will be the preachers meeting and so there'll be a lot of guests here for those things. So so keep that in mind um, on those two days there, the Monday night and then Tuesday morning. And there are sign-up sheets in the back still on the, on the table on your left as you leave in the outer foyer. So if you would like to sign up, uh, ladies, to help in the nursery uh, for, the, for the Tuesday morning especially, and then, of course, Monday night too, but, and then uh, for the dessert fellowship that we'll be having as well. So if you want to sign up for those things, uh, please do that on the way out. That would be a big help. And then don't forget also going on the 3rd and 4th, okay, so it starts on the 2nd, the 3rd and 4th, there'll be no school those two days, Monday and Tuesday, all right, so keep that in mind, parents. No school Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday that week will be half days, all right? And that is uh, so that we can have plenty of time to, um, you know, uh, in, I don't say entertain, but to, uh, to take care of our guests while they're here and to plan for the services uh, for, for the evening there uh, each night. So keep those uh, things in mind as you're looking ahead. And there's a lot of other things that are coming. There's more teen activities and foundation builders. We have an activity coming and things like that. So, um, but that's as far as I'm going to give you because I think that might be all we can remember tonight. All right. But uh, there's a lot of other things coming up. So um, be looking at the bulletin and the calendar and things like that. Let's go ahead and get our prayer list out if you would tonight. And, uh, of course, keep uh, uh, our pastor and his wife and Brother Jack and Miss Lizzie in your prayers. They'll be traveling back tomorrow. Um, I don't know if you've already seen it, maybe on social media already, but uh, a great report there. And uh, Brother Jack and Miss Lizzie were, were unanimously uh, nominated to go to the field of Japan by the, G, uh, uh, the GIBM. Uh, so that was a real blessing, and then Pastor was able to present them this morning, and uh, he's already made some posts about that. So it's just a wonderful thing, Amen. And we're a excited for them, and be but be much in prayer for them still, as uh, now they'll be probably starting to line up some churches to go to. And uh, being down at that meeting there in Indianapolis, I know there'll be a lot of exposure there, and then of course uh, again here for our, our meeting here in just a few weeks. So be much in prayer for them, as they have a lot of things ahead of them still. And, uh, of course, as they travel back tomorrow. Amen. So keep them in your prayers. Uh, obviously, the fall revival needs to be on our prayer list. Uh, if you have not uh, put that on there already, make sure that you write that down and be praying um, for uh, Brother Alexander as he's going to be preaching and uh, all week, that the Lord will just give him the exact messages that we need and, and uh, that everyone will be able to be here and in their place. I'll tell you, it was amazing to me just this last week hearing about people getting colds and getting sick and things like that. And I told my wife, well, you can expect that. Fall revival's coming. So spiritual warfare is going to start happening, all right? Satan hates what we're trying to do. So we need to be much in prayer for each other and for the meeting. So keep that at the top of your prayer list. And, of course, um, as we start there on the left column uh, on, on your prayer list, Ms. Carolyn Moore, keep her in your prayers as she's still settling in over at uh, the Good Samaritan home there. And, and, and of course, came down with covid uh, this past week, but doing well to my understanding, and uh, so hopefully uh, that will continue. Be in prayer for Brother Moore as well as he is adjusting. Miss um, Marie Christian, I know with her uh, eyes, we need to keep her in, in our prayers. Um, also, I think of Brother Bob Nugent; he has a heart doctor appointment tomorrow, so uh, make sure you're in prayer for him as he'll be going there um, and getting that test done, and then. Uh, Let's see, Brother Roy McRae, we had an update on him. He was not able to get his cataract surgery yet, but it is postponed to next Thursday. All right, so if you want to mark that down there next Thursday and keep him in your prayers there for that, that cataract surgery to take place. And then also next week, Miss um, Allie Kennedy is going to be having her test done next week, so make sure we keep her in our prayers as well. That's the 27th, correct? If I'm not mistaken, is that Tuesday, I think, next week? So keep that in your prayers. Um, Miss Nancy Burge, um, having a lot of health issues right, issues right now, and we need to be keeping her uh, in our prayers for sure. And I think that's all I had marked down. Is there any other prayer requests tonight or updates or anything that we need to be aware of that we are not aware of that I can make? Brother Raymer?
Amen. Amen. That's good. Anyone else? Yes, Miss Waters. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Said Harold Powell. Is this Candies? Katina. Okay. Amen. Yes, sir. What is his name? Nate. Is he, his last name? Okay. All right. We'll sure keep him in prayer. Anyone else? Yes, Ms. McCray. After the first of the year. Okay. Put on there. They don't have a date on that yet, I'm guessing. Okay. All right. God, all right. Keep, your, keep uh, Lauren in your prayers. I know she's been struggling with that hip for a while. So, ligament tear. Okay. All right. Anyone else? Okay. Let's go ahead and have our men come, if you would, tonight. And uh, thankful we can go to the Lord in prayer for these things, and He hears us. Amen. And uh, certainly a lot of things to pray for. I'm thankful that none of it takes Him by surprise. Amen. He already knows and already knows the answers. What a blessing. And that's Brother Waters, if you would pray for us tonight, Brother.
the most recent uh, prayer letter from Miss Ruth King, our missionary to Japan, of course, who works very closely with her parents, uh, George and Ellen King, there in Japan. She says, uh, big news, Dad and I are finally headed back to the U.S. September 27th through November 21st. So that will be next week. Uh, they're going to be heading back. She said, the borders allowing us to return to Japan are gradually opening wider. We will be getting some needed official business, new documents made, and some medical issues taken care of. The work on Kameoka Church roof is ongoing. The wheels are slow, but things are moving here in Japan. Thanks for the prayers on this. Our summer retreats, VBS, and camps were tough this year. Some had to be canceled, which is a bitter pill after all the preparations. Others were hybrid, but most ended with a group of COVID-positive participants. The good thing is that we were not openly criticized for causing outbreaks. uh, This has been a learning experience to everyone. Leaders are making new protocols, but still planning to hold camps as safely as possible. Uh, Most of the participants are young, and these events are covered with prayer, so there have Uh, thankfully there have been no serious sickness. Japanese companies are really hurting with the economy being so bad. People are having to cut back as the cost of everything skyrockets. The good news is that our missions conference in July was blessed above our goal and we were able to raise our support of Japanese foreign missionaries by 20%. Earlier this year I wrote that we were having trouble with unemployment with our men. We are thrilled that all of the fathers and men that were unemployed are back to work. On my last letter, I requested prayer for Sister Horikawa uh, for her health. She's been diagnosed with two separate cancers. She's now in treatment with chemo uh, to be followed by surgery and other treatment for, and treatment for the second cancer. This is a challenge for the church, but many of the younger and older people are stepping up to fill in the gap. For Souls in Japan, Ruth King. So good update there. Continue to pray for her as well as her uh, dad, George. Of course, he is uh, getting older and and his health gets worse, seems like, every year. Uh, So continue to pray for them as they are ministering there in Japan. Brother Whitney, would you pray for uh, the kings as well as our other missionaries? Amen. Let's stand together one last time and turn to page 606. Page number 606, all the way, my Savior leads me. We'll sing all three verses tonight. Page 606.
just need to be following him. Amen. Great singing tonight. Remain standing. Go ahead and get your Bibles ready for the message tonight. If you take your uh, Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, and we're going to be reading down through verse 12. Uh, kind of a small section uh, this evening, but felt like it was just kind of a, a point we needed to stop and labor on it for just a minute here, and uh, I, I think you'll see why here uh, as we go through. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. He says, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. I've titled the message this evening, Is the Lord's Face Against You? A lot of times we think of God's face being against someone, I mean, against those that do evil, the wicked, the bad people. But I think our parameters for what constitutes wicked, what constitutes evil, are probably oftentimes a lot different than what God's parameters are. I think we're going to see that this evening. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for this message and thank you for your word. That, uh, I pray that you'd work, that your spirit would have liberty tonight. And uh, above all, you'd be honored and glorified. And pray you'd bless this message. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so, we've just been through a chapter and a half or thereabouts of very specific instruction, dealing with very specific circumstances. But the specifics of the circumstances that Peter dealt with, they're starting in uh, chapter 2, verse 13, and going all the way to chapter 3 and verse 7. Uh, those specifics, those certain circumstances, are not intended to be applicable to only these circumstances. I, I don't think that's the, the gist of the message. But we are so wicked sometimes. Uh, so self-absorbed, so willing to deflect blame or whatever the case may be, that we often can look at those passages and say, whew, I'm glad he missed me. You know, probably most of us would, know the, would, would understand the difference between a rifle and a shotgun. If you don't, here's the primary difference. And I know some gun enthusiasts are going to, well, technically, we, we're not going to get into all those technicalities. But here is the very dumbed down basic difference between a rifle and a shotgun, at least as far as the layman is concerned. A rifle shoots a solid projectile in an essentially straight line. Of course, gravity and other environmental factors come into play. But a shotgun shoots multiple smaller projectiles, BBs typically, encased in a shell that kind of spread outward upon ejection from the barrel. So you have a rifle that's shooting pretty well straight, and it's going to hit whatever the point is at the end of, at the end of its uh, travel. Whereas the shotgun, it's going to start kind of doing this as the BBs leave the barrel. And, of course, the spread, that pattern gets larger and more erratic as the distance from the barrel increases. Now, one of the first things you learn in homiletics, you're going to get a little bit of a preaching lesson tonight. One of the first things you learn in homiletics is that any sermon really should be more like a rifle than a shotgun. While Scripture passages are applicable in any number of ways... All Scripture has a primary or central 
idea, and any application must come in line with that central interpretation. As such, while preparing a sermon, specific application must be made. That's why sometimes when you might be listening to a sermon or or, uh, something along those lines, or even a, a teaching type Sunday school lesson or something, and it just... Something just doesn't seem right, and it just kind of feels like it's going all over the place. And, and of course, I, like anyone who has spent time studying and preparing, if you're not very careful, it is easy to start chasing rabbits and start going off on all this other stuff and think of how it you know, kind of applies in this situation, that situation, all this kind of stuff. And the more you do that, the, le- the less the effect of the sermon will be. The Word of God demands a response from its listeners. And like a rifle, the, uh, the sermon takes that Scripture passage and aims at specific individual lives. It's got a point. But a sermon will fall flat. It will lose its impact when a preacher tries to take the passage and apply it to anything and everything all at once. We want to get everyone where they are, but in so doing, sometimes we make it more like a shotgun and we spray these little BBs all over the place. You may hit a large area, but the individual impact will be minimal. In fact, what often happens is that the sermon is more like a sawed-off shotgun. It might look cool. Every teenage boy says, oh, sawed-off shotgun, I want one of those. But in reality you're probably going to hit everything, but it's going to have very little effect on anything it hits. But so sinful are we that when we see the preacher aiming at others with his rifle, we leave the service, wipe our brows, and say, whew, glad he missed me. And we convince ourselves that he certainly couldn't have been aiming at us Well, I'm not going through that specific situation that he mentioned in the sermon, so I'm not going through it right now, or I'm not ever going to go through that specific thing, so, whew, made it through. He gets to that application, and as soon as he mentions some circumstance that we're not in, or maybe we were in that a long time ago, but not anymore, or whatever the case may be, we turn our ears off and start thinking about dinner or what we're going to watch when we get home, or what's going on at work tomorrow, or just thinking how tired I am and I'm ready to go home and get some sleep. And I think this is partly why Peter includes verses 8 through 12 here. While these verses don't particularly act as a summary of the previous sections, they do link the preceding specific sections, the specific instruction that Peter gave in verses 2.13 through 3.7, to the entire context. If you were with us in the previous several messages, we did get really specific, didn't we? Uh, We dealt with employers and employees, specifically the employee uh, attitude and relationship to their employer. Uh, We dealt with uh, the specifics of a... A, uh, a subject as far as a citizen who is required to obey the law and obey government and, and that kind of thing. We dealt with the husband-wife relationship. And we even saw how all of these are, are applicable not only to these specific relationships, but also to the uh, teacher and student relationship and to the, the uh, uh, church member relationship, relationships with one another, that kind of thing. But you might have thought, whew, I'm glad I'm not a husband or a wife. I'm glad I don't have a job. I'm not an employee or whatever the case may be. And in doing so, we can completely miss the point of the passage. Well, I'm not in one of those specific circumstances, so I don't really have to worry about submission. I don't have to worry about responding properly to persecution because I really, I mean, we haven't really faced persecution like, like they do over in China or like they do in Russia or other places like that. And so the point, the entire point of submission to those who have authority over you is just completely missed. 
So Peter gets to verse 8, and just in case you, you're, you're exempting yourself from the previous section, he says, finally, be ye all. That includes everybody. Be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. And what we see here is, uh, like I said, not really a summary, but somewhere kind of in between a, a link there, a, a, a reminder that the previous sections, while getting very specific, apply to every single Christian. Every single person who said, I'm going to be a follower of Christ, these apply to you. In fact, I think we could put it this way. Living righteously applies to all Christians. In this verse, he gives us five imperatives. Now remember, the backdrop of this epistle is persecution and suffering. During this time, the Christians of the first century were going through a great persecution there in, uh, that was government-sanctioned. Uh, it was empire-wide throughout the entire Mediterranean area that, that they were beaten and drug out into the streets and thrown in jail and worse. And that, that persecution was not a possibility. It was a given. It was, it was happening. It was, if it hadn't happened to you yet, it was going to happen. But even enduring great persecution and suffering, we've seen throughout this epistle that the follower of Christ can and should live righteously. In other words, we could say you should live a holy life. The previous examples all fall under the umbrella of living righteously, even in hard circumstances. And guess what? That applies to all of us, too. You may not be in one of those exact circumstances, but you are or will assuredly face a similar circumstance at some point. The principles in all of chapter 2 and into chapter 3 still apply to you. And I think that's what we'll see Peter is really saying here. So he gives us five imperatives. You remember, an imperative is a command. Get a little bit English lesson here. If you don't remember, an imperative is like saying, you, do something. That's a command. So these imperatives, there's five of them here just in verse 8. The first one is, be ye all of one mind. And actually, again, as we've talked about this before, translating from Greek to the English uh, there has to be some clarity because languages are just different. Grammatical structures are different and things like that. And so this, this verse really is, is five words uh, that are imperative verbs, but that are translated how, I mean, what the intention of the verb is, what the verb is. So the first verb is, be ye all of one mind. The next one is having compassion one of another. The third is love as brethren. The fourth, be pitiful. And the fifth, be courteous. That be ye all of one mind has to do with spiritual unity in the church. Understand this. He's not saying that the members of the community of Christ called the local church need to be identical. Uh, our pastor isn't standing up here with a cookie cutter or even standing at the back. And as we're all walking out, stamping, okay, cookie cutter, we're all the same. We're all identical as we leave this church. That's unity. And unfortunately, there are churches uh, 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 through history that have thought that that really is what unity is, that we all have to be exactly the same. We all have to have the same ideas and the same thoughts and, and all of that kind of stuff. But that's not really spiritual unity. But this church must be unified in its doctrine. Uh, we have to be unified in our philosophy. That we don't have this Sunday school class doing their thing and this Sunday school class doing their thing. And, and Brother Jack's over in the teens and he's just teaching and preaching whatever he wants. And, and it's, it's amazing how many churches just kind of let their youth groups in particular just do whatever. And then these, these teenagers who have, who have spent their entire youth from, from when they were small children up to they graduate high school 
just kind of doing whatever and always having fun and this and that and the other thing. Then all of a sudden they graduate and they go, okay, you're ready for church. And they're sitting in the main service like, what is going on? I have no idea what, how to even act here or respond or what. And those are the ones who disappear. Well, church is just a little too boring. Things like that. No, we need to be unified in our doctrine. We need to be unified in our philosophy of ministry. Do you know why our pastor regularly preaches against things like arguing about the color of the carpet or how much money is spent on some mundane task or, or some activity or ministry or how exactly this should look like? Because he wants this church to be unified. Be ye all of one mind. Have some spiritual unity. The next imperative is having compassion one of another. This term has primarily to do with action. Uh, to take note of situations with your fellow Christians where you could help, you could be an encouragement to do something about circumstances that your, other, your fellow Christians are in. Uh, the next one is to love as brethren. Remember that you are brothers and sisters in Christ. You are joint heirs of eternal life with those in the pew next to you, behind you, across the auditorium. We've even spoken about this in previous messages, but you know, the church probably ought to be an even greater bond than family. I'm not saying that, well, you know, we just church and, and family, we just ignore them and everything's about whatever's going on here. But the fact of the matter is there are people across the world who have been disowned by their families, who have faced great persecution when deciding to follow Christ, and they found a so much greater family in their church to love them and care for them because it's Christ's love. And the last two are be pitiful and be courteous. And I kind of feel like these two really go together. And you might look at that and go, be pitiful? Really? Saying be pitiful? Well, this really is, it's become my favorite part of verses 8 and 9 as I, as I got to studying into this verse. One guy said it like this. You could basically translate these terms like this. Have a tender heart and a humble mind. In fact, the word translated, be pitiful, is found only one other time in the New Testament. It's found in Ephesians 4.32. And if you've been a student in our school, you ought to be able to quote it. And the word translated here, be pitiful, in that verse is translated, tender-hearted. And Paul's point in Ephesians 4 in that verse is that they as brethren, as brothers and sisters in Christ, should be tender-hearted toward one another. And quite literally, tender-hearted is how it's translated in Ephesians 4.32, and then the other time is here translated, be pitiful. And you might say, well, what, what's the difference here? Well... It has to do with a true, honest, emotional response to what your brothers and sisters in Christ are going through. While the response of pride has rigid demands, tender-heartedness recognizes that there may be an aspect you aren't aware of in this situation. It tends to give people the benefit of the doubt. And then the word translated, be courteous, has very much to do with humility, with how we see ourselves. In fact, I think it's, it's important here that they use the word courteous, okay? because I think we pretty much all know what courtesy is. And honestly, I think we could, we could say courtesy is like the baseline of humility. Right. Haven't we probably all at one point said, well, it's just common courtesy. Somebody did something we didn't like or... We're kind of rude. Well, they, why'd they do that? It was just common courtesy to do it this way or to, to do something when they didn't do anything or whatever the case may be. So I think we could call courtesy the, the baseline, the lowest level of the outward expression of humility. It has to do with the little things. 
We're not talking about these grand gestures. Just the little things. You know, it's, frankly, it's easy to act humble when everybody's watching. It's easy to show some humility in the big things, in the great grand things. It's not so easy to be humble in the little things. It's not as easy to be humble when you're not thinking about it, when you're not paying attention. How many times have we done something and go, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't even, th- I wasn't thinking. I wasn't thinking. Courtesy is the training of ourselves to do the humble thing, whether we're thinking about it or not. That's true humility. And someone's humility or lack thereof will come out in the courteous things they do when the pressure is not on, when nobody's watching. Things like holding the door open or letting another car in front of you when the lanes merge. Courtesy is rooted in true humility. And true humility starts inwardly. I think what Peter's saying here is that any situation you find yourself in must be addressed from a position of tenderness and humility, to have a tender heart and a humble mind. That tender heart and humble mind will allow us to respond to evil with blessing. So he says in verse 9, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. And you might look at that and say, well, okay then, so I just won't respond when someone says evil things to me, or I, I won't respond if someone does something evil or, or rails against me or whatever the case is. But Peter, he goes far enough to say, no, it's not enough to just ignore it or not respond, but contrary-wise, blessing, that you respond with blessing when others are evil. As Christians, we are expected by our Savior to respond to persecution to suffering, to hatred, with the exact opposite attitude. When others spew hatred, we should return kindness. When others fling insults and lies, we should respond with love and humility. But that's not really how the world works, is it? Probably everyone has, every one of us has faced this situation. When, when something happens that a person doesn't like, they respond with anger, with frustration, uh, something happens and, and somebody comes at you and their attitude's already up here. I mean, they're coming at you up here, ready to, to, to fight or whatever the case is. And our inclination, our sinful, prideful response is, okay, you're coming at me up here, I'm going to take it up here. And it just escalates more and more until something gives, until feelings get hurt or until, or, or until there's just a, a, a terrible words are exchanged or whatever the case may be. Jesus says, when someone comes at you up here, you should come down here. And that's really a universal truth. I can't tell you how many times, even even in the short time that I was uh, in charge of the school, I had multiple occasions where parents come in on the warpath, ready to, I mean, they're coming in up here, and if I had come at them, Brother Eric figured this out a long time ago, if he comes at a parent up here when they're already up here, it just gets worse. But when a parent comes in like this and you come in down here, it's like, whoa. Or at your job, dealing with customers, dealing with your boss, whatever the case may be, when they're coming in up here, you come in down here. Most of the time, honestly, a lot of times you'll get a, uh, I don't even know how to respond to this. And, you know, usually you end up mending a fence rather than tearing it completely down. What we need to understand is that path, the sinful pride, the escalating responses, that kind of thing, responding to hatred with hatred, responding to railing with railing, will only lead to shame and failure on both parties. In fact, down in verse 16, he says uh, that, that they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. We're not going to get into all that. That's a message for a different time. But the fact remains 
that whether it's here on the earth or standing before God, all of the hatred and railing and all of that, the evil will be answered for. Yeah, but I want to get ahead right now. I want to get this. No, no, no. It's not your responsibility to. That's God's responsibility. And if you continue that process, you're going to answer for God, to God as well. He says, not railing, rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing. And here's the kicker. Knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. I think we could put it this way. Your relationship with God is dependent on it. It's not optional how you respond. It's part of your calling. You are a follower of Christ, then holy, righteous living, which includes submission to authority, which includes humility, which includes uh, uh, returning kindness for evil done, is part of your calling. Not fulfilling this basic requirement leads to an absence of God's blessing on your life. And not just, I mean, uh, so much of this book has been what we would call eschatological, looking forward and talking about the day that Christ would be revealed and the day that salvation would be made complete and all that goes along with that. But this passage specifically has your present life in mind. We're talking about God's blessing upon your life in this life. He says, if you can't fulfill these requirements, if you can't follow these commands, you won't have God's blessing on your life. I submit to you that you cannot live your life any way you want and still expect to have a right relationship with God. And somebody might go, well, that's legalism. No, that's not legalism. Because as we've seen so many times, this legalism says that you can't, uh, you can't be right before God. You can't have any kind of relationship with Him unless you do right. You do these good works, and those, by those works, you'll get yourself salvation. Peter's saying here, no, 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 your, your relationship with other people and with God can't just be handled however. And if you find yourself in a place where you don't see God's blessing and you don't have a right relationship with Him, the first place you need to start is, how am I living my life? Do you deal honestly and righteously with your fellow man? Do you have a tender heart and humble mind? It amazes me how often people want God's blessing. And I would see it in my own life. And I think we all could see this in our own lives from time to time, how we want God's blessing. And we do all these things and we work our best to make sure everybody else sees the good things we're doing. And yet somehow we think we can divorce our business practices from our walk with God. Or we can divorce our personal lives from our walk with God. Or we partake of these wicked vices with no thought about how this affects our relationship with God. You say, well, yeah, but look at all the, you know... They did all sorts of stuff in the Old Testament. I mean, Abraham, he, he did all sorts of, you know, what we would consider, I mean, are bad things today. Like, like uh, well, a, one of my favorite ones I hear is, well, Abraham and a lot of the old patriarchs, they had multiple wives and stuff like that. And they were wrong. And they dealt with the consequences of that over and over and over again. And it often did affect their relationship with God. You can't divorce the various aspects of your life and expect that I can just still have God's blessing and do everything that I want to do and God will still help and, and you know, make me successful in my job or my career or my business or whatever the case may be. And if you're wondering... Verses 10 through 12 give us an Old Testament Scripture proof for this. He ends this paragraph with a quotation from Psalm chapter 34. Turn back to Psalm 34. I think it's important that we read a good portion of this. Psalm chapter 34 is almost verbatim quoted. Verses 
12 through 16 are quoted there in verses 10, 11, and 12 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Psalm chapter 34 was written by David shortly after he had left the presence of Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, uh, uh, you know, where he, we're not going to get into all of that, but those, suffice it to say, those were very dark days for David. Very dark days. So remember that throughout this epistle, Peter has been using Old Testament Jewish imagery applied to New Testament Christians. And just like those who trusted in God in the Old Testament could expect God's blessing upon their lives, those who trust God in the New Testament can expect God's blessing upon their lives. So he says in verse 12 of Psalm 34, What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he, uh, that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open unto their cry. And verse 16, the face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Now hold, your, hold both places. Okay, we're going to flip back and forth real quick here for a second. So in 1 Peter 3, Verse 10, it says, For he that will love life and see good days, let him re refrain his tongue from evil. Verse 12 of Psalm 34, What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Of course, I didn't finish verse 10 there. It says, And his lips that they speak no guile. Verse 11, Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. That would have to do with pursuing something. Down in verse 14, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Verse 12 of uh, 1 Peter 3, for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. Same thing in verse 15 of Psalm 34, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and he, his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord there in verse 16 is against them that do evil. In verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, there in 1 Peter, But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Even in the dark days for David, he could still look to the timeless truth that God blesses the righteous that those who put their trust in Christ, who live holy lives, will have God's special blessing on them. They will have His favor, and He will always have concern for their cry, their prayers. It's not enough that, okay, I'm going to live a holy life and live righteously. Of course, this is all during persecution and suffering and all that happens in this world. But one day we'll be vindicated. That, we talked about that back in uh, chapter 1 of 1 Peter. That one day those who trust Christ will be outwardly, openly vindicated at the day when Christ is revealed. And no matter what they've gone through, no matter what has happened, Christ will, will return and will vindicate all of those who trust in Him. But Peter says it's not just that day. God's blessing, God's care for you will cover your life here on this earth so long as you live righteously so long as you live a holy life? Conversely, God's face is set against those who don't live righteously. That's such a vivid picture. I think most of us would know what that looks like. We've either done this or mainly when we were kids, we got this a lot. I think all parents would know this, this look that when your kids start start acting up, doing something they're not supposed to do, and you just, you know, furrow your brow, set your jaw, you just got lock eyes with them, and they know, I better stop this right now. Something bad's about to happen. That's setting your face against them. But notice, it is not the, the parameters for the evil are not Look at all the bad things they're doing. And they're really into all these terrible things. And they're a murderer. Or they're all these, they've done all these bad things. But rather, 
I think the parameters for evil are you're a sinner. And in particular, the child of God who has been called, we saw that there in verse, uh, verse 9, you have been called to live righteously. You've been called to live a holy life. If you're not going to do that, then you're part of the wicked. Then you are living wickedly and God's face is set against you. It's not a spectrum of, well, I can, you know, I'll stay kind of over this way and everything will kind of work out pretty good. And, you know, the more I go this way to live righteously and do, do right, live holy, then, you know, the, the, then God just kind of... No, it's not a spectrum. You're either living for God, living holy, living righteous, or you're living wickedly and God's face is set against you. You're not going to see God's blessing when you're partaking of known sin. No, no, I get it that we sin constantly because we are sinners and we are not perfect and we won't attain perfection on this earth. And we constantly have to go to our Savior and ask for forgiveness. And we constantly have to confess our sins. But when you say, you know, I don't even have to deal with that. I'll just kind of coast through life. Well, I'm not doing anything really bad. Well, you're not living righteously. You're not living a holy life. You, Christian, need to evaluate every day the kind of life you're living. Do you respond to life's situations righteously? Do you sow true compassion to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Uh, James said, well, if you say, be ye warmed and filled, and then walk away and not do anything about it, is that really showing compassion? No. No. I think we can see a common theme throughout this epistle. Once we've put our faith in Christ, once we've been saved, we are called to a life of humility and holiness. And anything outside of that is rebellion against God. And it's a loss of God's blessing on our lives on this earth. That's the start. It's the very beginning. If you aren't willing to do this first step, nothing else will fall into place. Well, why do I seem to always have problems here, or always have problems there, or always this just it seems like everything's always going against me? Well, how's your relationship with your Savior? Are you really even attempting to live a holy life? Well, I don't do all these other bad things. Well, that wasn't the question. You've been called to live a holy life. You've been called to depend upon Him. Are you obeying these imperatives? Is there spiritual unity in this church? Do we have compassion one of another? Do we love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we have tender hearts and humble minds? I think a lot of times when we look at those from God's perspective, we don't really fit the bill. And we want to just coast through life and, well, not do the bad things, but I'll just kind of coast through and not really live. I mean, I don't have to really live a holy life. And God says, no, no, I, I won't bless that. Well, why does it seem that God never hears my cry? Well, are you living righteously? We've talked about how that looks like over and over again throughout this epistle. Our pastor, our, our patter, pastor, excuse me, I need to learn how to talk. Our pastor preaches about it week in and week out to live holy lives. We, I think we can get a general, a pretty good idea of what that looks like. But are we? We've got a revival coming up. Have you actually prayed for our revival? Have you actually said, Lord, Speak to me during this time. It's so easy for us to just say, well, he's got that rifle. Unfortunately, he's aiming it at somebody else, not me. No. The message of the Word of God is aimed at every heart. You need to listen and obey. Submit. We've talked a lot about submission. We need to submit to the Scriptures and live a holy, righteous life life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your grace.